Welcome to Saints and Sinners Unplugged. I am Pastor Ken Jones from Glendale Baptist Church, and I am joined by our regular panel of co-hosts. We have Pastor Aldo Leon from the Reconciled Church, David Menendez from Tamiami Baptist Church, and Pastor Jose Prado, the bishop amongst us from the Christ Family Church. Uh, We are four local pastors here in the city of Miami who get together every week at this time to discuss various aspects of, as one friend would put it, historic Protestantism, or as others would call it, Reformed theology. Now, last week we uh, began a a discussion with our good friend and brother uh, Dennis Johnson, retired, recently retired professor of um, pastoral theology, or is it practical, practical theology at Westminster in Escondido, Westminster Seminary. Now, by the way, Dennis, are you uh, professor emeritus now? Is this what I hear? They did give me that emeritus thing, yes. <laughs> wow. They were so grateful not to pay my salary that they gave me that extra word now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, uh, David Wells is the distinguished professor emeritus oh. at Gordon Conwell. So, well, I will never achieve that. <laughs> Maybe extinguished. <laughs> Well, Dennis, it's great to have you again. And uh, last week, we began with uh, really from uh, your main premise of the importance of a Christ-centered hermeneutic, understanding that the scriptures that Jesus himself uh, says that the scriptures speak of him. And when he says the scriptures speak of me, he's referring to the Old Testament. And certainly that, as you pointed out uh, in Luke 24, He shows the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, as well as to the disciples that were gathered in Jerusalem, that even the sufferings of Christ are prophesied and anticipated in the Old Testament scriptures. And we see that as a core part of his teaching, especially towards the end, where even after the uh, confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, uh, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus began to teach how he must go into Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of of, uh, the religious leaders. And when it says he began to teach, he doesn't just say this is going to happen. He doesn't just predict it, but he opens the scriptures again to show them. So this Christocentric hermeneutic is not something that a few guys in the 21st century has superimposed on the text, or even at earlier points in church history that we have superimposed this upon the text, but is really understanding what uh, the New Testament writers understood about the Old Testament. Now, uh, Dennis, what you have done, and, and I have recommended this book over the years to a, as many preachers as I could, uh, a number of years ago you wrote, Him We Proclaim. And in that book, you talked about the importance not only of a Christocentric hermeneutic but how we should be Christocentric in our preaching. So could you give us a little background on that particular book and some of the ones that are the the two others that flowed from it? Yes, yeah, I'd be glad to, Ken. Um, Actually, Him We Proclaim uh, started uh, as a sort of a short course in Westminster Seminary, California's Doctor of Ministry program in preaching, several decades ago now, um, that program had one week that focused on preaching Christ from all the scriptures, 
And Dr. Edmund Clowney, the first president of Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, would uh, come out to California and teach for us Christ in the Old Testament, Christ in the Prophets, Christ in the Pentateuch, um, the other than Christ in the Psalms. Um, and the director of the program asked me to come in. He would teach Dr. Clowney, who's written The Unfolding Mystery and other things on Christ-centered preaching, uh, would teach in the morning, and then I would teach in the afternoon, and the director of the program asked me as a New Testament professor, which is what I was in those years, I was teaching New Testament, to come in and show the pastors who were taking this Doctor of Ministry course program with, with Dr. Clowney and others, show them that what Dr. Clowney was doing with the Old Testament scriptures was uh, grounded in a biblical hermeneutic, um, that, that there was a reason for why he was making the connections he was making. So it started as that, and then it, it became as kind of a prelude to that course, uh, an essay of, I don't know, 20, 30 pages called Reading the Bible Like Peter and Paul. Okay. Um, and then in 1997, uh, I was uh, invited to move over from our Biblical Studies Department into Practical Theology and began to teach preaching courses specifically for our Master of Divinity students uh, and just expanded it from there. Um, and so it has my background in Biblical Studies and then my thinking about how to teach preachers to preach the Gospel in all of its fullness. Uh, in such a way that people are called to faith, and then people grow in faith in Christ. So that's the big book, 460-some pages. Um, and once that one was off the press, that was 2007, so that took about a decade to get mm. done because I was teaching it. Um, then I, I began to get invitations to teach, like for church weekend conferences on Christ and all the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even actually some international opportunities uh once upon a time you and i were in tanzania right yeah yeah, that's right yeah and and uh, we actually shipped over some copies of him we proclaimed to give to the tanzanian pastors which was great but i thought you know it's a big and kind of complicated book so could i say something more briefly but also unpack things that i didn't say so much in him we proclaim, um, and that is how the covenant structure of the Bible and the role of the Lord and the servant in the covenant, Old Testament and New, are all fulfilled in Christ, to point to Christ. And then the offices of the Old Testament, uh, theocratic, prophet, priest, and king, how those are all fulfilled in Christ. So I kind of unfolded those and reduced some other things, and that became walking with Jesus through his word. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought that was nice and short, easy, 270 pages, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, real, real nice, and, thought, nice and simple. Be huh? <laughs> a nice and simple, short yeah. for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my wife would say. Um, but then I thought, I wonder if this could be useful uh, to church members and to pastors, and, and particularly to pastors in the developing world who don't have all the resources we have. I have a friend who ministered for a number of decades in Latin America, South America, and now continues to minister um, to the Spanish-speaking world. And he read, walking with Jesus through his word, he said, it's good stuff, but it's way too long to translate into Spanish. Mm. 
Uh, <laughs> but then he said, this is by email, of course, he said that he would actually do the abridgment for the sake of the Spanish translation. And then we could use the English abridgment if my publisher and I wanted to, to come up with a yet shorter version. Mm. Um, and that one actually in English has come off the press. Uh, Spanish is close to coming off the press. Uh, and that came off the press just earlier this year, 2018, uh, Journeys with Jesus, Every Path in the Bible Leads Us to Christ. Mm. Um, so that's more accessible. I think it's about, oh, I'm looking at it here, what is it? 150 pages. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, when you talk about preaching Christ, from all of Scripture, and I know Ed Clowney had a book, I think, that was entitled Preaching Christ from All of Scripture. Uh, to yeah. go back to our, our, our pre, uh, last week's discussion, where there are common mistakes that are made in, in you know, going, gaining that Christocentric hermeneutic, and it, it also follows in preaching. It's One of them is what, what I've discovered with some young guys, and that is uh, finding Jesus under every rock. So there are some parameters that you, you mentioned with uh, Christ as our covenant head. And so when we talk right. about the threefold office of Christ uh, as our covenant mediator, prophet, priest, and king, um, how important is it? that when we read any of the narratives, even in the Old Testament, concerning either a prophet, a priest, or a king, that whether that king or prophet or priest are good or bad, how the office, its office itself points us to the person and work of Christ. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really crucial, and I think that helps us to see the connection to Christ from texts that maybe are not explicitly quoted in the New Testament. But, you know, the prophets are the servants of the Word of God. Their, their task is to bring God's Word from God's heavenly council chamber. Uh, the Old Testament prophets, of course, Moses is the great classic Old Testament prophet, and he promised in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord would raise up a prophet like him. Uh, we know the New Testament says that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus, who is more than a prophet, but mm -hmm. is the Word of God incarnate. Um, but then the later prophets uh, sometimes functioned as prosecutors, uh, indicting, accusing Israel of covenant unfaithfulness. Mm -hmm. um, but typically, they would also have a role as promisers, prosecutors, prosecutors, promisers. I'm a preacher. I try to work for alliteration. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Good. <laughs> promising that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God would still be faithful and gracious so there would be, to take one example of a prophetic promise that's big and rich, and there would be, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 31, a new covenant mm -hmm. um, that goes deeper and is stronger and, and can't be broken by the unfaithfulness of human servants. Um, uh, there will be a new David, says Ezekiel. Uh, not, not just David somehow recycled on earth, but a son of David who would be the shepherd that Israel needs. Um, so the, the Word of God, wherever we find people bringing the Word of God, as you say, sometimes they do it faithfully, mm -hmm. sometimes they are not so faithful. Sometimes, you know, and every human prophet in the Old Testament is a blend of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Sure. 
um, where they're faithful, they are a preview of Jesus. Where they're unfaithful, it's very obvious that they are only a preview. Right. Um, yeah, so... And, and why there's a need for a, a better and greater king better. or prophet, yeah. Right, right. So, so Moses is faithful in so many ways, and then he's unfaithful. And instead of speaking to the rock, that second time of Israel's complaining about dying of thirst, hmm. he strikes the rock, which is what he would sh- should have done, did do in the first event, mm-hmm. striking the Lord, as it were, the rock of Israel, and water came forth. But Moses, in his own arrogance, failed and didn't enter the promised land. Elijah stands fast, right, hmm. against the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Baal, and then Elijah and slaughters him, right? 450 <laughs> prophets he slaughters. And yeah. then he gets word that Queen Jezebel has put a contract out on his life, and he puts his tail between his legs, and he runs south. Hmm. And I alone am left, he says. Right. Well, no, he's not the one and only offspring of the woman, <laughs> hmm. after all. He's he's a, a witness along the way, but he's pointing to a better, faithful word of God, Jesus Christ. Same thing with the kings, who are the administrators of God's rule and protection. Hmm. Um, David is kind of the, the template of the faithful king, so later kings are always judged by David. Mm-hmm. They, did they follow in the ways of the Lord as their father David did? And yet, the authors of the Old Testament historical books, um, you know, which the Hebrews would think of as prophetical books, because history is not just bare facts, but it's prophecy, always remind us what David has failed. Hmm. Um, he's not the king we're looking for. Right. And, and the, the same is true also of the priests. So. Um, and and couldn't we also know. say uh, couldn't we also say national Israel, just as a nation, yeah. they were prototypical and yeah. not an end in itself. Right, right, right. Yeah, not you can't say that in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> or Miami. And you mentioned you mentioned there, uh, Dennis, uh, how David failed, and by extension, we could say how Israel yeah. nationally failed. And uh, yes. I'm wondering, you know, the distinction of law and gospel and then covenantally, how that plays out within a Christocentric uh, uh, proclamation. That is a, that's a great question, because, uh, you know, although we know from, you know, New Testament texts that from the standpoint of eternal salvation, once sin entered the picture in Genesis 3, the only way anyone could enjoy eternal life with God is through the gift that God would give in the person of Christ and his obedience to the law on our behalf hmm. and his suffering the law's curse on our behalf yeah. and his resurrection vindication um, that then is credit, you know, in a sense we already, we taste it already, resurrection, life, and yeah. uh, all of that true. Um, but there is a kind of a principle of uh, built into the covenant that God makes with Israel at Sinai and then when they enter the land, that if Israel as a people mm-hmm. prove, obviously not sinless because they won't be, but prove faithful to the covenant, they will retain their tenure in the land and they'll experience covenant blessing in the land. Right. And if they're unfaithful as a people, yep. 
they will experience all the curses that are laid out in Deuteronomy 28, uh, and including exile from God's holy land. So there's a works reflection, even within the covenant with Moses, which is ultimately an administration yeah. of God's covenant of grace, but there's a works principle built in there such that Israel's ultimate failure That's a great shows point. us we need a better Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. We need a better son of God, since God called Israel his son when he sent Moses to, to Pharaoh. Israel's my son, let my son go. We need a better son of God. Yeah. who will uh, truly, deeply merit eternal life and eternal blessing. And, and so Israel's failure points us to Christ. Yeah, yeah I found that, that uh, the, the lack of that understanding kind of obscures that this continuity, continuity, covenantal framework um, yeah. that so highlights the grace of God in the proclamation of Christ crucified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think something else... I mean, you, you you said it, but I guess I would say it this way: is that talking about Jesus in every sermon is not—that's not what Christ-centered preaching is. You know, if, if you just kind of talk, it's all about Jesus, yeah. and you say His name multiple right. times. Hmm. Power you, of the name. Yeah. Or if you say <laughs> grace multiple times, yeah, it is presenting yeah. Jesus <clears throat> as as He's been understood and proclaimed in in the Scriptures as, as a mediator, as the last Adam, as a representative, as a as our priestly substitute as uh, the embodiment of prophetic revelation in himself like you know the, these are the things you know the lamb of god the these these the the true son i mean all these things um are what it means to be jesus centered in your preaching as opposed to just just throwing out the concept and the name and the idea as you preach or even just kind of pre- i think that I think that's so important because I think some people, maybe because they've heard it this way, but some people have the impression that every sermon, every Christ-centered sermon, no matter what the text is, is going to sound exactly alike. Right, right. And that's not it. There's a there's a, a beautiful, rich texture yeah. of ways that yeah. the sufficiency of Christ is shown to us in the Old Testament Scripture, and every sermon needs to deal with that particular text. Yeah. Yeah. In the light of what it emphasizes, and then show us the root that comes to fulfillment in Christ. So yeah. I think that's crucially important. Yeah, there's 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 a textual nuance that bursts the Christ-centered sermon, as as opposed to just preaching a preaching like this kind of generic Christ gospel mm-hmm. in every text. And I, th- yeah. I think I've seen that. We were talking about a preacher who does that. Mm-hmm. Like he kind of he comes to Romans. And he just says the same thing about the gospel. It has nothing to do with Romans 6, nothing to do with Romans 5. Um, but there's like a nuancing that's a part of that same gospel diamond, but it has a cut that's unique. You know, sometimes mm, yeah. the, the suffering servant is, is the kind of, is the, is the nuance that's more emphasized. Sometimes it's, 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 it's the ascended priest, you know, yeah. and other times... You know, it's it's the resurrected. I mean, it's there's all these connected things, but there's a nuancing that doesn't make this kind of bland, generic, kind of I don't know, Christ message that doesn't have that sensitivity. You know, that's important. Yeah. Well, I think with yeah. the if to be able to faithfully preach Christ from all of Scripture, and that's why I greatly appreciate the original work, Him We Proclaim, and as in and also uh, Ed Clowney's book preaching Christ from all of Scripture, 
it presupposes a firm grasp of the promises of God in Genesis 3.15 and how that is typified in so many different ways. So the progressive unfolding of, of God's promise that's made in Genesis 3.15, recognizing that Jesus is that fulfillment, and the more we see it nuanced in different historical settings, then it shows us, as Aldo said, a, a, different, a different dimension, a different angle of that same truth, whether it's the suffering servant, whether it's the spotless lamb, whatever it is, it, it, it points us to Christ. And so what that does is it, it causes us to, it, it, it enriches the scripture. As a matter of fact, uh, Dennis, you mentioned earlier uh, Moses striking the rock. And the way, uh, there, there's uh, an outline that in, in Clowney's book where he uses that particular text. And when you read that, wow, it's, it, he's not forcing anything on it. He's simply opening up that historical narrative with Christ as the center, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that he is that rock. And then so it, the whole idea that Christ is the one who bears the rod of God, and from that rock, his people who deserve the punishment receive refreshment. Mm. Now, I think that preaches yeah. every day of the week and twice on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's yeah. not just allegories. Yeah, it's, it's something too, like Christ-centered preaching is not doing a gospel presentation in the middle or the end of your sermon that has nothing to do with the text. <laughs> right. I think, I preach the, you know right, I preach the gospel every Sunday, what they mean is to give an altar call. Yeah. <laughs> at the end, I say, oh, by the way, there's people that are lost here, and we're mm-hmm. going to give a gospel presentation. And so the whole sermon to the Christian has nothing to do with the gospel, but we kind of like, it, it's kind of mm-hmm. like an addendum mm-hmm. unrelated to the text. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's not yeah. what we're talking about either. Well, Dennis, in our last few minutes, I, I've got to do this because between your commentary, him uh, or uh, the triumph of the Lamb, and Greg Beal's commentary on the book of Revelation. I'm reading them both right now. I, I, I think every other commentary needs to stand in line behind those two. And don't also... Forget, don't forget about Hendrickson. Well, Hendrickson is good, but I think, I think these two are, are the best. And one of the reasons I, I really appreciate uh, your work on, on Triumph of the Lamb is because it, even though it's one book of the Bible, you really bring to that, that interpretation, all of the principles that you set forth in him we proclaim. So that revelation is not ultimately about helicopters and strange things that are gonna happen. The but chip, it's, the it's, chip, the chip. <laughs> it's, it's really about understanding Christ as he has been presented historically and prophetically. So could you give us just sort of an overview of your approach in um, Triumph of the Lamb? Um, yeah, I'll give it. I'll give it a try. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, first, first of all, uh, as you hinted, I mean, I I started. You know, I was I was raised. Yeah, to look and then I, to hear locusts and think helicopters. That that's yeah. that's the tradition I was raised in. Uh, but then when I started to teach at, at Westminster, actually even before that, um, I realized first of all I have to pay a lot of attention to Revelation one one. Mm. Uh, which is like a title, an inspired title for this book. Not every book has an inspired title, but this one does. <laughs> the Revelation of Jesus Christ. 
which God gave him to show his servants what would soon take place. So it's about him. Yeah. It's about Christ. Yeah. Uh, and if I make it about current events or past events or even all of world history uh, and, and fail to see what it reveals about Christ and what Christ reveals in it about the conflict that the first century churches, the seven in Asia that are listed in that first chapter, as well as we experience, then I'm, I'm off on the wrong foot to begin with. So you have to focus on Christ. You have to focus on the fact that um, the Revelation itself signals that uh, what it's talking about uh, is not a series of events that was, we now in retrospect would think, 2,000 years distant mm-hmm, yeah. from those first readers, but it, was, it touched on their experience and also touches on our experience, obviously, because we're still awaiting uh, the return of the Lamb. Uh, uh, the, 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 the symbolism mm-hmm. drawn from the Old Testament, uh, not a lot of explicit quotes in Revelation, none of this that you find in Paul, this was to fulfill, or thus it is written, or mm-hmm. Matthew, this was to fulfill, but allusions just embedded all the way through in the imagery. Yeah. So the clue to the symbolism needs, you know, we need to go back to the Old Testament and look at that symbolism. And um, and then I began to see, too, that the structure of the book of Revelation is really a series of cycles. And this is one of the things that I think Hendrickson is very helpful on. Others have seen it before mm-hmm. he wrote it well. Uh, so that we don't read the order of the visions from chapter 1 to 22 simply as a map of the order of the events that the visions portray. Mm. Uh, in a sense, it's like we get we have various video replays mm-hmm. on the same events and the same conflict over and over again to show us different perspectives. Um, and and then to emphasize that there's a, there's a degree of... Um, paradox, uh, mm. things are not what they seem to be. Uh, if we look at things, at the events of history, it looks like the martyrs right. uh, lose because they're killed. Right. But in fact, the martyrs win mm. because by the blood of the Lamb, they're faithful to their testimony, and they have defeated mm. the accuser, Satan, because Jesus defeated him decisively. But he's held on to them, and so what looks like loss is actually gain. Um, what looks attractive when you go beneath the surface uh, in the world is actually yeah. ugly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the visions are intended to help us see things through symbolic form as they really are, and so to give us stability. Yeah. Um, and, and as you said, that, that, that stability comes from the fact that he has triumphed. And, and I, I love in that first chapter that the first scene that John has is Christ seated on the throne over all of the kings of the earth. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't recommend that commentary enough. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here, Dennis. We have to have you back again, and uh, the time goes too fast. But thank you for joining us here yeah. on Saints and Sinners. Thanks. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you so much for the invitation, John. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. And boy, that's a lot to unpack and a lot to chew on. 
So thank you for joining us, and we look forward to being with you next week at the same time on Saints and Sinners Unplugged. And let me remind you, you don't have to wait to listen on radio. You can go and download uh, this as a podcast. Go to Apple, uh, your podcast or Apple Store and and just download uh, Saints and Sinners Unplugged as a podcast, and you'll get each one, uh, each, each uh, episode after it airs. Or... Or you can go to the website, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Or the website. Can, or you can go to my our, my church's website. Sure. <laughs> Reconciled well, Church. Yes. Yeah. ReconcilechurchMiami.org has all of them. So you have three places you can go: our website, the church's <laughs> website, or the podcast. Well, let me give you our website. <laughs> well, let me give you. Are they on there? Are they on there? <laughs> no, yes. I'm talking about the Saints and Sinners. Yeah. Website. Okay. So Saints and Sinners what? Unplugged. Dot org. Saints and Sinners. Saints and Sinners Unplugged. Dot org. All right. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again next week.